Well, good evening. It's good to see you all again tonight. <clears throat> I, uh, I was inspired last night in our service, and um, we began singing a hymn, and we sang these words. The day will soon be over for us to work and win. There's many a gem lies hidden beneath the dross of sin. So let us dig and find them God's power. It is enough to polish into beauty the diamonds and the rough. So much that's been said this week has um, just kind of set a backdrop for that. And as we sing those words, I will go home inspired. I feel like that we don't need to um, recover the gospel like they did in the days of Martin Luther. But I do think we need to recover a sense of urgency in the proclamation of that gospel. The day, it's kind of your, your life's given as a day. I, and I feel like the sun's setting. Time's so short. <clears throat> Opportunity's so short. And the world has got a, so many distractions. I look at these children this week. I've been watching them come and go, and I thank God for everyone, everyone that's here. They're growing up in a generation different than the one I grew up in, and a different, different America, and I guess to a certain extent, a different church, <clears throat> different people. But the hope for that generation is the same as it was for mine and for yours, and the brother, the brother that just spoke. Any other. It's ever been. And that is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the only hope is the gospel. It's not any other thing. That's the only thing we've got. That's the only hope for this generation is the gospel of Jesus. And there are uh, so many things out there. And it seems like you could, the government's got a lot of so many programs and so many different so many different things but honestly and all designed or at least under the name of helping people but the gospel is the need of all mankind it's the gospel and I'm convinced that many of the problems that are addressed by society would be better addressed in a spiritual manner than try in a much it would be a much more direct method than trying to fix the the symptom of the problem and so that responsibility will never be taken up by any uh, municipality or other figure of authority that responsibility is only on the church if the church does not preach the gospel then who in the world will so there's an, it's, you can't, it, it's, it, this is it, it's us. Right, that's right. 
And think about the tremendous opportunity that's out there. And so life is going by and opportunity is going by. And this young generation is coming up. And we unite, if nothing else, join me in prayer. That God would raise up young men and young women that would die to sin and die to self and die to the world and get along with God and let God give them an anointed word that they could faithfully proclaim to their generation. We can't create a infrastructure or a strategy or anything that's going, that, that's going to preserve and just coast on. It's only that God will raise up men and women young that are inspired with a message and a burning heart and a real experience that they can preach. Because that's what, that's what saved the early church. That's what saved every other movement that's ever been in history. It's been preaching of the gospel. If God will help us tonight, I'm gonna, um, I would like to begin reading in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. <clears throat> Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands that at that time you were without Christ. And I'm, I'm reading in now in verse 12, if you want to follow along, in Ephesians chapter 2. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometime were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. <clears throat> Going back to verse 13... I'm sorry, verse 14. He is our peace. This is writing to sanctified believers. This is the Christian experience. It doesn't say He brings us peace. He gives us peace, although I know in a sense He does. But notice that it specifically says He is our peace. The very presence of Christ, the very essence of His Spirit is peace Right. To, the Christ, to the sanctified believer. Right. <clears throat> so it's not anything else. And I think that's important to recognize that He is. If He is the peace that comes, obviously, to the heart, to the soul, and we recognize He is above all, He yep. is supreme, we recognize He is the only source of peace. Amen. And the Scripture calls Him the Prince of of peace. I want to share with you tonight a little bit, turn back to the book of Genesis, and we're going to, I want to walk back, way back in time, and go back toward the beginning, almost. It's incredible how fast man fell when sin came into the garden. You all know the story. The second generation of people that we find is, we, it, the scripture records the first homicide. And you know the story, that, and it wasn't just uh, a couple of enemies at war. These were brothers. But you see, the heart was so corrupt. 
It, when it fell, it's, it's no bottom. It just keeps falling. And so that's the, um, what you find in, you all know the story that Cain slew his brother out of envy. His works were righteous and his, well, Abel's works were righteous and his were evil. And there was a, a envy and all the, uh, all the lusts of the flesh were in his heart. And that's why he slew his brother. What it says here, God called him and pronounces judgment of sorts on him. And Cain said that my punishment's greater than I can bear. I'm going to be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And the Lord said and put a mark on Cain. It says, And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Don't lose the fact that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, he wasn't the last person to do that. But you see, when he went out from the presence of the Lord, he had life to live. He continued to live. It records right here that he got, he got married. He went to the land of Nod. He had children. And he built a city. Why, did he, why does the scripture record that? I've wondered it for a while. Why does it say he built a city? Well, I guess this was sort of his legacy. It was his... Something that Cain did, besides the fact that he slew his brother. After he departs from the presence of the Lord, he builds a city. You continue reading in the book of Genesis. You know the wickedness of man was so great, God saw fit to destroy the earth. And come the days of Noah and the great flood, Noah had three sons. After the flood, they began to populate the earth. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the cursed son of Noah. Ham had a son... If you turn to chapter 10 and you read the um, descendants of Noah, Ham had a son named Cush. And you read in chapter 10 and verse 8, And Cush begat Nimrod. Now before you snicker, the Bible had this right before the world perverted it. But his name was Nimrod. And the scripture says he began to be a mighty one. In fact, in Chronicles, it records that he was, he was a mighty one in the earth. That was after his name. When you read anywhere you read that in Scripture, the name, this man began to be a mighty man in the earth. He was a wicked man. But he was a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Is that familiar to you? and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalni, and the land of Shinar. And out of that land went forth Asher, and he builded Nineveh, and the city of Rehoboth, and Calah. What you're seeing is men now departed from the presence of the Lord. They're starting to... There's just something inside the nature of man that begins to construct things. They just build things. That's what men do. And the greater the man, the greater the structure he builds, at least in the eyes of the world. You see, Cain, there's not a more infamous name in all the world than Cain, but he built a city. Why did he do that? 
There was this disconnect from God. And when he departs from the presence of the Lord, he is seeking something. It's like he wasn't even conscious of what he was doing. But his hands are looking for something to create that's going to carry his name beyond his life. Maybe it was a seeking refuge, a place for his family. And he felt, I'm the man, I'm the protector. I've got to create a uh, protection, something, my own city. And so he builds a city. And Nimrod built several. In fact, he created not one city, but a kingdom, a number of cities. And the idea is to defend themselves against outward threats, create a sense of security, and even more than that, a sense of self-worth. It's, a, it's, it's, it's just trying to do something that you can see, that you feel good about, and that everyone else can see while, you're, while they're at it. Isn't it nice? And all men are like that. Well, I say all. I mean, I'm talking about mankind, humankind. Let me put it like that. When there is a disconnect from God, there is an immediate turn to a variety, and many times it's different. It's just this, like the troubled sea. It's unrest. It's work. It's effort. It's, I've got to be busy. I'm doing something. Doing something. Because there is a... There's something inside that's motivating. And it's very often misunderstood. The world thinks it's great. It's uh, this great drive. And men are innovative and they create many innovative things that have been for the benefit, no doubt. But it's all produced by that same carnal drive. Right. Turn to the next chapter. What else do you find? The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Chapter 11. It came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Remember, Shinar was Nimrod's kingdom. In the land of Shinar, they found they dwelt there. They said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. The Lord said, Behold, the people is one. They have all one language, and and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them that they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down. Let us. God says that a lot in Genesis. Let us make man. Let us go to. I just thought I'd drop that in there. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. And they called the name of it Babel, because the Lord there did confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon all the face of the earth. So what you see... Uh, is this is not, uh, you see a pattern. This isn't just a few random details that the scripture hides and is putting in there for no reason. There's a pattern. They're building, they're creating. 
And all of these men are the infamous men of the scriptures. These are the the wicked men of the book of Genesis. Let's compare for a minute. Who, when you t- say, right, let's read about the great men in the book of Genesis, who would you think? You wouldn't think of Cain. You wouldn't think of Nimrod. You think of Abraham. Your mind immediately goes to the patriarchs. So look on the other hand, it, about the same generation in time, about the same uh, place in history, we find a man named Abraham. And Abraham, albeit he was wealthy and God had blessed him. What did he do? <clears throat> what does the scripture say? And you all know. Abraham was a man that God had called and gave him a promise and gave him a land. He gave him a not a, a piece of property or a couple of acres, but he told Abraham every place the sole of your foot would trot will be yours. He's given it to you and to your children, to your seed. This is your land. And so you see, Abraham leaves the place of his nativity and he travels and he continues to do this throughout his life. And the scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews that by faith, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should afterward receive for inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whether he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles castles walled cities no dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise for he looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God it's a completely different level and a whole different mentality than what the great men of the world were doing right They were building, they were working. And Abraham, even though he had the means and the ability to do so, he sees the vanity of it. He doesn't need a city for defense. He has peace with God. And he can just walk wherever he wants to and he just stretches out the land of Canaan is before him and can sing something like, this is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. He was at home because he was in the place that God had for him. His soul was, he didn't have this, uh, this incessant drive. And Isaac was the same way. And Jacob was the same way. They lived this way. This was, but these were the great patriarchs. And I see a similarity in those men, the patriarchs of Genesis, to the apostles of the New Testament. Right. There's, a, there's something similar in their mentality. Because the apostles of the, old, of the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when you start reading the book of Acts, they didn't build anything either. They didn't build there's i've tried to find like what what how did they go about their what was their structure what was their government and what was you know how did they set up their and it tells you some things about church government but honestly it gives you a lot more information about the character of the men and women that fill the roles of government than it does exactly how it's supposed to set up that's far more important to god but you see they had a church they planted churches 
but right. never records that they built sanctuaries. No. They didn't create. And listen, I'm not finding fault with anybody. Don't feel like I'm trying to throw a stone. That's not my point. Right. But my point is saying they had a mentality. They had right. a. Right. They saw so much far beyond that. They met in the synagogues. They met in one another's houses. Right. I've never yeah. seen a church like that church. Now, I don't mean to hurt you feel anybody's feelings. I'm just telling you, to be honest with you, I've never seen a church like that. I know we've got the Spirit. I understand that. I understand Pentecost. We have, but I've never seen a church like that. I've been in church before when the place was shaken, when everybody was, we were singing as loud as we could, and y'all jumping up and down at the same time and shouting together. But it says that when they prayed. Right. The place was shaken. When they all got quiet and knelt down, it Amen. just shook with the power of God. Amen. I've never been in a church like that where a couple people come in who weren't straight shooters and they made a profession to be hypocrites and they fell down dead in front of the apostles and the young folks took them out and buried them. That happened. That's the kind of church they had. But you see, they did not, they weren't invested in material things. It wasn't in bricks and mortar. They were investing in people. And I'm sure that they had to make provisions for their meeting. I'm sure they had natural needs. Of course they did. But their emphasis was not creating a name. It wasn't promoting something that could be seen. It wasn't a lifting up some great thing like because they had peace with God. And it wasn't like creating protection, drawing walls around them. They were just infiltrating society, pagan cultures, Corinthian cultures, Greek, Greeks and Romans overseas, Jerusalem, which was one of the most dangerous places at times for them. But they had peace. They had a contact with God. He was their peace. I'm going to turn, um, I'm going to turn to St. John. If you want to turn with me now to St. John chapter 14. And I, I'm going to, I've asked God to help me with this tonight. And I, <clears throat> John chapter 14, I'll begin reading of verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. My Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which hath sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And in that text, I think we can best understand, maybe it'll help us to understand something of the peace of God. Because one scripture says, the peace of God which passeth all understanding. 
great peace. Let's consider for a minute the peace that the world giveth. What kind of peace does the world give? Jesus says it's not as the world giveth. Well, you may immediately make a reaction and say, well, the world doesn't give any peace. No peace out there. There's no peace, saith my God, to the wicked, which thing is true. But I don't think it's as that you you can make it more complicated than it is. The world, isn't it ironic that the world, what is peace? It's the, I suppose you could say it's the absence of conflict. It's the absence of fighting. When there's no fighting, you have peace. And so when there's no war, there's peace. And Jesus says it's not as the world giveth. The world gives peace by force. That's the method that the world gives peace. Because whoever has the most force at their disposal is the one that dictates the terms of peace. It's always been that way throughout the history of the world, of mankind. Whoever has the most force, has the most authority, is the one that creates peace. And when there is turmoil, and when there is an uprising, it is a greater force comes in and puts, once one, and when two sides are at war or at battle, and it can be two individuals, one of them eventually rises above the other one, and then the fighting's over. Then you have peace. So it's, a, it's ironic that everyone wants peace, so you strive for bigger weapons. That's how it works, at least in this world. And here in the United States... It starts on an international border. I suppose there's more money spent in defense than any nation that's ever been in history of the world. That may not be accurate, but I believe that's true. There are soldiers all over the world. An untold amount, exactly, it is money we don't have. I'm not going to... Listen, let me get back to that real quick. We need, this is why the gospel is so important, because I'm telling you, it's the only thing that's going to stand the test of time. All this stuff you think is going, is just so great, it ain't forever. I think I heard one time there's been 19 world powers since the Egypt, since the foundation. That may not be accurate. Probably something like that. I mean, superpowers. That have had dynasties. Every single one has failed. And they reigned on this premise of force. They conquered through force and then they had peace. And their inhabitants have peace just like we do. And so they start, it starts on the international border. It is that way when, the, when they begin to settle the West. When the American frontier was moving west and they struck gold in California and they began to populate, you know the classic western story or a western movie yep. and a little trading post will pop up in some western spot and a few more people and before long you get some settlers and then there's a horse thief or something else and before you need a marshal 
And as the story always goes, somebody comes in or somebody rises up. The first thing the marshal has to do is whip the bad guys before you can have peace. And that, that's, just, that's just the way it is. He has to exert force, and it's you know a dramatic story, and he's the classic marksman, and he's the hero. And then he's the hero, and he settles into his office, and it's just, you know, happily ever after. And that is the peace that the world gives. And all the inhabitants rest in peace and comfort. So, here we... And I'm just using America, the United States, that's where we are. It's the country I'm most familiar with. Inside the United States, even though we don't have any immediate threats on our home soil right now, as of yet. Well, as of yet. It, it, right now. That we know. It's the same way. There's still, in the local municipalities, has laws and law enforcement. Why? To keep the peace. Because without that, you get all kinds of problems. And so... That is also kept by force and handcuffs and jails and take the and there's an apprehension of the violators of the law and they're incarcerated or whatever. There's a multitude of sentences for a multitude of crimes, but there's still the same principle. So you're in your local town and the jail is full and the bad guys taken care of and everything is going well on the international front and you've got trillions of dollars of armaments out there defending you and let's take a close look inside the home what is there and yet even with all of that you still find domestic violence abuse infidelity strife fighting homes what What's wrong? Yes. This is real. I'm telling you, the gospel is a real solution for real problems. This is what this is the world that we live in. Because the peace that the world gives can never reach the personal level. It can never get inside the heart. It can never calm the, the, the... There's one hymn that Isaac Watts wrote. I like how it's pretty poetic as all of his stuff was, but it says not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give one guilty conscience peace or wash away one stain. But Christ, our heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of noble name of richer blood than they. Well, if the blood of, of beasts could not give one guilty conscience peace, wow. how much less all the armaments and battleships in the whole world? Amen. How does that give peace to the heart? How does that come? So Jesus is saying, my peace give I unto you. It's not as the world giveth. My kingdom's not of this world. Amen. It's not that way. So don't look for it in that way. And yet, people naturally want to do the Cain style and create circumstances around their life that are that create a peaceful, tranquil, resting soul. Right. 
That is, I need to, if I could do this, 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 and this, it create a circumstance that is more favorable than the one I'm in, and I'll be happy. It's going to produce peace. It's going to produce contentment. And it's the Cain version. Because you're looking, and it might not be, I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not talking about fighting and war, but I'm talking about creating props. Anything you bring into your life that is carnal, is temporal, is natural, to make yourself content and peaceful is taking, is attacking the problem in the wrong manner. It's not, that's not the way God works. Amen. And I understand why the world does that. Why the world seeks pleasures and comforts. And we all like that. Our natural man has, a, a, to an extent, is gravitates in that direction. So this is why Jesus tells the apostles, and this is what made them so different. He gave them something the world could not see. They couldn't see it in their circumstances. And I know some of you here tonight just wish this circumstance was different. Listen, I have... And before I got here, I have really searched my own heart about my own experience. Because I got to admit that my circumstances are pretty good. And I bless God for that. In fact, the reason I thought about this, I was talking with someone uh, a little while back. It was a man that was about my age. He pointed, he cited my wife and my family and this young man was about my age and he didn't have either wife or family and desperately wanted both, especially the wife. But he felt like if he was in my shoes, then that would naturally make him feel like I feel. And he's not the first person that's tried that. And I don't want to discount that because there may be some measure of truth in that. But what I feel like, this is, I believe this stuff. I really do. I'm convinced that it's not the circumstances. It's God. It's a real spiritual experience inside. And that's what makes my home life productive. My home would be just like thousands of others were it not for that so god wants to bring peace not to your circumstances not to your international borders i mean listen now i ain't saying we want to run out to a place and live in a place like uh sudan or somewhere's refugee camps it's awful i'm not saying that but what i am saying is i it's not creating reaching out and trying to create circumstances and improve them in your life in order is taking it completely in the wrong direction. I understand why the world does that. What I don't understand is why Christians do it. Right. Amen, brother. Because Amen. that's that's what we're doing. Comfort and pleasure and fun and all this stuff is going in the it's the cane method it's going in the wrong direction it's building a city it's creating and uh drawing a wall around myself and i have peace the enemy's out there and i'm inside and then you take the problem with you 
That's what, that's what the message is from Cain. So I think we can learn a lesson looking at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and those New Testament apostles and considering their life and watching them. They didn't... I mean, you find a man like Peter... I, listen, I know some people have difficult circumstances. I'm not saying you need to... And I can't tell you from personal experience, at least not right now, but I can point you to that story and tell you about a man named Peter in the days when persecution against the church was so intense it said that, that Herod stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. And then were the days of unleavened bread. <laughs> and the story goes on. They apprehended Peter and put him in the prison and commanded four quaternions of soldiers to keep him. And Herod planned his execution for a certain day and created and he put it on the calendar and invited people to come. And this was going to be a big... And the very night before his execution, Peter was sleeping in the prison between two soldiers and bound with two chains. And he's awaiting his certain death by the sword the very next morning. And he's sleeping so soundly that the angel had to hit him on the side to wake him up. Come on, we're getting out of here. He was so calm. He was so relaxed. He was so peaceful. It wasn't his circumstance. But there was something on the inside. He had just, God had put a burning in his heart and a desire and a love. He had died to self. He was completely given to God. And God had proven himself time and time again. And the gates began to open and the chains fell off. And he found himself at liberty. Now one day, another circumstance like that would come. And the end would be different. And Peter would die a martyr's death. But he had like Paul and Silas just singing all the way. The scripture doesn't record it. It doesn't give us a record. But we know that man had peace with God. And so peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth. Give I unto you. I hope. That you all can recognize that, understand that it is, um, I'm going to turn and read you one more place. I know it's, my time's up. Brother Joe told me to be done by 8.30. Well, he didn't say that exactly. (laughs) It's not the circumstance, y'all. It's not the problem. And that's not the solution. Reading in Psalm 18. I didn't really... Anyway, let me me get on to read Psalm 18. You all know this text. It says here, For thou wilt light my candle. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. I'm reading in verse 28, Psalm 18. For by thee I have run through a troop, and by my God have I leaped over a wall. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in Him. For who is God save the Lord? Or who is a rock save our God? It is God that girdeth me with strength, and maketh my way perfect. 
He maketh my feet like hinds feet and sitteth me upon mine high places. He teacheth my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. He's given me the shield of salvation. And the psalm continues and goes on and on. But I want to call your attention to that verse. It is God that girdeth me with strength. Now I had one. I'll share with you a quick story. I'm through. I'm not going to read anymore. But a certain occasion happened one time when I was growing up. I had a good friend in school. And uh, I spent a lot of time in his house and he in mine. And as we got older, we both shared a passion for the mountains. Particularly, we'd go up there in the winter and ski and snowboard. We, we were just, as we were young, and once we got driver's license and we could go up there, his parents had a place up there and wasn't that far, and we could drive up there and spend the weekend and come home dog-tired. We always dreamed that one day we'd be able to go out west. We'd heard all about, we'd sit and look at magazines and pictures of the big Rocky Mountains, you know. Oh, yeah. And oh, it was just a dream. I mean, it, it was like, well, I'll never see that. And it uh, wasn't too long, in the, uh, his uncle, he had an uncle that took a pastorate out there in Denver, Colorado. And the very next Christmas, his family invited me to go out to Denver, Colorado with them to see Uncle Richard and ski the Rocky Mountains. Well, I want to just tell you while I'm, I just don't, I can't, I got to tell you that God has, wasn't too long that God completely broke that passion. And it's been gone from me ever since. And I thank God for that. I didn't mean to say that, but but at this time we loved it. We were we were going. Oh man, I was so excited. We were going. I could not believe it. I was actually going to get to go. And we got on a plane and flew into Denver under the cover of darkness. And I got up the first morning and ran out to the window and looked, and I didn't see any mountains. <laughs> and I was a little disappointed. But that morning we got in the car and started driving west. And we hadn't gone far before we made a few rounds and hills. And all of a sudden, those mountains just stretched out in front of us, covered in snow. It was the week between Christmas and New Year's, and it was beautiful. I'd never seen anything like that all my life. Pictures didn't do it justice. And I sat in the back seat with my face pressed up against the window. I was like a country boy in downtown New York City. I'd never seen anything like that in all my life. We drove through those mountains, and I was just looking, looking at the mountains. It was, and while we were going down the interstate, I saw standing on a rock was a Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep. And I've never seen anything like that, of course. And I called everybody's attention to it, and we all tried to take pictures going down the interstate. But we started looking. I said, that, that, that was an, do you see that? Anyway, we started looking. And every day as we traveled back and forth, and one day we spotted some more, and it was a small group of them, and I watched them as long as I could. It was unbelievable how those animals could stand on the side of a cliff. And they weren't just standing precariously. You would have had to have been tied off with a rope just to hang on to where they were. They were running around like squirrels going around an oak tree and chasing each other and playing. It was incredible. They could stop going downhill. And I'm talking about cliffs, rocks. I'd never seen anything like that. If you had tried to go up there, you would have fallen to certain death. There's no way a person could, could 
without tremendous climbing gear and all this stuff. And it was just their natural habitat. God had made them that way. He put that in them. And they could run around up there in those high places. That was the way that God built them. He didn't make me that way. He didn't, make, he didn't give us that equipment. And I want to tell you about the God's peace and the way of holiness. It's just that way. As long as you try it on your own strength, you'll never make it. You only fall down to certain death and to the discouragement of others. And many have tried. But the Scripture says, He maketh my feet like hind's feet. And setteth me upon mine high places. It's, it's something complete. It takes you to a realm, to a, a place the world can't see, a place the world can't go. God doesn't bring the way to heaven down so some sinner can climb up to it. He raises him up and lifts him up and puts him in a, pla- a place that he was absolutely impossible for him to live before. And you can live there. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Heavenly calling. And it says that God has called us with an holy calling. And over there in Ephesians, it tells us that same scripture that he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places by Christ Jesus. And my circumstances might not look like a lot of fun to you, but you can't see the high place. And that's the place where God wants you to live. It's well, that's right. You were singing that higher, nobler, these have allured my sight. When you see that, you can live there, not in your strength. You've got to see something die to that and recognize it's not as the world giveth, and leave the ways of Cain and stop building the cities. And quit trying to fix everything to just right and say, God, I need you. It is God that girdeth me with strength. He maketh my way perfect and setteth me upon mine high places. And that's my experience. And I praise Him tonight for that, for that truth, for that fact. We do a lot of things. We need to preach the gospel. It's the only way anybody's ever going to get there. But that is where the saints trod. It's where they walked. It's where they lived. And it's way above the current of this world. The congregation stand. We'll sing a hymn of imitation in closing.